uh, to us this Sunday. We do that uh, every other month. He has that opportunity to speak, and we enjoy having him present God's word. I enjoy having him um, speaking God's word. For one, I can sit down and take it in and listen to God's word, and for two, it gives me a little bit of a break during the week in preparation. So I appreciate um, him uh, fulfilling that role and blessing us all and being a blessing to each of us as he does that. Today, to follow his sermon, let's take a look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. So Philippians 3 through 4, 1. If you turn there in your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, our ushers have Bibles available. Just raise your hand, and they'll bring one right to you that you can use throughout our service. So go ahead and raise your hand now if you need to receive a Bible. And then if you would all please stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. Philippians 3, starting at verse 1, going through chapter 4, verse 1. Follow along with me as I read aloud God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship, the, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus And put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, Under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk 
according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told, of, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If you would remain standing with me for a word of prayer, and after prayer, we will have special music from our choir, and then the, the preaching of God's word, Elder Brian Kenner. Let's remain standing in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time for prayer. We thank you for bringing us together again, uh, that we could come together. It means you have given us safety and protection, protection throughout this week. Your grace has extended to us and um, has protected us and has blessed us. Thank you for each person gathered here today. Uh, we thank you that um, you've allowed us to, to come and to join together. We pray, Lord, that our fellowship would indeed uh, be sweet. Sweet because we know you as our Father, as the one who has provided salvation through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us to have relationship with him. We thank you for that. Sweet because as believers in Christ, uh, we have fellowship with one another. We've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and our lives have been transformed. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your light. And we share that together. We are on uh, the journey of, of trusting you together. We encourage one another, and we get encouragement from each other. And so, Lord, for that, our fellowship ought to be sweet. We pray now, Lord, for the preaching of your word that you might make it clear to us. Be with Brian as he uh, speaks your truth. And we pray, Lord, that we might focus on what you have to say to us and we might put it into practice in our lives. We might be the examples. We might be a testimony to you so that the gospel can come from us and, and be heard and seen and believed on by others. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank God for this opportunity to be able to preach again. Preach again in Sweet Communion. I got to preach in Burlington, and that was a blessing. But it's nothing like being back home. And I get to preach about a book that me and Brother Joel, we've been going through in our discipleship. Praise God for Brother Joel. He's been an encouragement to me. And we were discipling on this book, and since we went through this book, it kind of got in my head. 
And so the Lord just put it on my mind to preach on this book. And so I thank God for his word. And in the book of Philippians, when you get into it, you got to ask the question, what is it about? And, you know, I was talking to a pastor the other day. He said the book is about joy. And so I went through and I studied the book. And I saw that joy was in the main topic of about 13 verses in this book. But then, good and bad times, right, the contrast between going through good and bad times was in 24 verses. Being partners with one another was in 27 verses. And the gospel was in 29 verses. So I asked myself the question again, was the brother right? Is this book really about joy? And the answer is yes, it is about joy. Number one, because just because of the mention of a number of terms, right? I might do a bad job today and say um a thousand times. That doesn't mean the sermon is about um, right? (laughs) So the number of mentions doesn't necessarily indicate all the time what the importance of the book is. But joy is going through all these different things. Joy is what allows us to go through the good and bad times. Joy is what makes partnership necessary and worthwhile. Joy is the experience that we have with the gospel. And so when you look at what this book is about, the book is about that Paul wanted the Philippians to rejoice through the good and bad times by partnering together to further the gospel. That's what the whole book is about. And you got to understand that the Philippians were going through hard times. In fact, from the book itself, it says that God had caught them to suffer. That they were going to go through persecution and go through hard times. And Paul wrote this book from prison. So he was going through hard times. And so this is a book for people who are going through hard times and are going to go through hard times and are going to keep going through hard times. Because guess what? Life is hard. I thank God my wife came back from the ladies' fellowship. She was encouraged. And she talked about how Sister Mickey went through the book of Philippians. It's good because the Holy Spirit is moving. He's moving in the sense that he wanted the ladies to have the heart of Philippians. He's moving in the sense that our special music today was, it is well with my soul. He's moving in the sense that the choir song was, he's a wonder. And all of those things are something that the Holy Spirit is hitting on. He's hitting on something. He's telling us something. And so when we get into verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, when he says, finally, I want you to understand that he's talking about the highlight of the book. Oh, yeah, we went through chapters 1 and 2. And he's taught us a lot in chapters 1 and 2 to kind of get us to understand the theme and the importance of the book. But chapter 3 is the meat, the point of the sword. And he says, finally. Now, when he says finally, normally when you think about finally, you think about the end of the book, but you see this is a four-chapter book, and we're only in chapter 3. So when he says finally, he's talking about, let me get to my meat. And he then 
tells them, rejoice in the Lord. Now, it's funny to me, but he says rejoice as a command, not an option. And he says it to the brothers, so you know he's saying this out of a place of love, right? And he says this, writing this is no trouble to me. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying, this is something that I needed to do. Now, Paul needs to do this for a number of things. Number one is, when you see the rest of this meat of this chapter, he's going to deal with some topics that they needed to fight. Because there were some false brothers that were coming in there saying some junk about the gospel that needed to be sifted out. But also, it was no trouble because Paul needed to hear about joy. You know, there's a difference, and I've learned as I begin to preach more and more, that there's a difference between preaching with and preaching at. I love the God's Word, and I love preaching God's Word because I learn from God's Word as I preach God's Word. When I'm preaching, I'm not preaching to you at something that I have arrived at. I'm not preaching to you something I have perfected. And Paul is going to explain that throughout this chapter. When we come to you with our hearts full of the word of God, it is not to say that we fully embody God's word. But we also come needy to God. We also come to this service needing to see your smiling face. I also come to church needing your encouragement. I also come to church needing to hear that song, needing to hear that word. And even if that word comes from me, you know what? I'm still encouraged by that word, not in an arrogant sense like, ooh, that was so good, even I'm encouraged by it, not in that sense. But in a sense that the Holy Spirit is just using me. I'm just a tool. And so it's just like when I'm playing a song on my clarinet and I'm playing a song, you know, I didn't write that song. I didn't compose that song. I just get to play that song. And so it is here. I didn't write this chapter. I didn't make this word. I just get to preach this word. And so I enjoy it with you. And so Paul is telling them, I'm enjoying this word with you. It's no trouble to me. And it is safe for you. I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters. Rejoicing protects the soul. And the reason that I went through and talked about the fact that I haven't arrived there is because I haven't arrived there. But I'm starting to learn this more every day. That rejoicing protects my soul. And rejoicing is not just about happiness, but it's an act of worship. He says rejoice in the Lord. You know, in the black community, we have this struggle. And we have this struggle with this concept of joy. Because if you go to some services and some religious sects of Christianity, they will put happiness as the focus. In fact, it goes so far as you go to a funeral and they'll tell you we're not sad. Now, I don't know about them, but I'm sad when I'm at a funeral. <laughs> I can't tell you that lie. If I go to a funeral, I'm not so holy that I'm not sad. 
And if you are that holy, you holier than Jesus because Jesus went to a man's funeral who he knew he was going to raise from the dead and he was sad. So I don't know where they get this mindset from. So we have this fight where some people are telling us, be fake happy. And then the gospel is telling us to rejoice, and he's telling suffering people to rejoice. And that's heavier. There's a weight to that. But you know what? You should feel that weight. You know what that weight is? That's the spiritual impact of God's word. It's not a light thing we're going to talk about today. But it's a true thing. It's a helpful thing. It's a transformational thing. We're talking about joy. Let's get into chapter, verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out. You know, Paul is addressing some false apostles. And here's the thing about false people. We have an identity crisis. We have false people who claim identities they don't have, and we have Christians who may not be claiming the identities that they should have. What are these false preachers doing? Well, Paul immediately turns things that we might think of as good into things that he considers bad. He calls them dogs. Now, dogs were an insultful, insultful term for people that weren't Jews, right? And these were Jewish men who came in, but he called them dogs. They thought they were doing the law. He called them evildoers. They thought they were being circumcised. He called them mutilators. Paul flips their identity on them. And then, in the very next verse, he says, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He then takes the identity that they tried to steal from us and puts it back on us. And I got to say this. These false apostles remind me of every false teacher. Because false teachers like to claim titles that they do not deserve. You go past a church and it says apostle so-and-so on the front, you can keep on driving. But why does that person have to claim the title of apostle? Why do they have to claim the title of prophet, evangelist? Why when somebody teaches something false, does he have to call himself a messiah? Why can't he be something else? Why he got to identify with the true God? Because they're liars. They want to steal from the things of God. Why? Because the things of God have a power to them. You recognize that apostle has some kind of weight to it. It has some kind of substance to it. And so they're going to say, ooh, if I take that title from me, I can use that. But these false apostles, supposed acts of worship were just acts of pride and impersonation. But we are the covenant people of God. He identifies us by three things. Number one is our worship. Our worship is empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you felt the Holy Spirit as we praise today, 
and you should have, then you will understand that if the Holy Spirit was present with us that today, he also endorsed our behavior. You realize that? Whatever the Holy Spirit empowers, he endorsed. The second thing is that we glory in Jesus. We put our pride in Jesus' work, not ours, because God made us who we are. See, there's a joy in knowing that you are who God made you to be. And I say that, and some people will think I'm talking about transgenderism, and maybe I am to a degree. It reflects on that, but it's more than that. There is a joy in knowing you are who God made you to be. God made us his people. We didn't make us our people, his people. God made us into his people. God made me a saint. God made me worthy to serve. God made you worthy to serve. God made you part of this church. God made you who you are. And then the third thing he identifies with is no confidence in the flesh. Not trying to count our work against God's perfect standard. Every time that I go out and witness, I talk to somebody and I say, hey, why should you go to heaven? And they'll say, well, because I'm good. And every time they say that, I know I'm identifying somebody who is almost 100% not saved. Because anybody who thinks that their little good works can measure up to God's perfect standard does not know God. It is not aware of his standard. But these false apostles put confidence in the flesh. And Paul puts them down. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he lists seven characteristics. Now, I want you to look at that and notice that the seven terms is pointing to something important. Seven is a number for perfection. And Paul is saying that pride will make you think you're perfect. Look what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day, first. People of Israel, second. Of the tribe of Benjamin, third. A Hebrew of Hebrews, fourth. Of the law of Pharisee, fifth. Of zeal, a persecutor of the church, sixth. And the righteousness under the law, blameless, number seven. All of these things that he lists... Jews would have looked at him and said, you're perfect. You're perfect. Circumcised on the eighth day, that's when they were supposed to be circumcised. He was of the people of Israel, God's chosen. Not only was he of the people of Israel, he wasn't of the ten tribes that rebelled. He was of one of the two tribes that stayed with the right worship system. Benjamin, right? There was Benjamin and Judah. That was all that was left. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He could trace his line back to Abraham. As to the law, he was the best of the law. He was a Pharisee. Not only was he a Pharisee, he wasn't a Pharisee, a backbencher Pharisee. He was a leader of the Pharisees. He was taking people to jail. And under the law, nobody could say a law that Paul had broken. Then Paul says, well, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Paul cast down perfect human achievement for the sake of gaining Christ. Let's read verse 8, 11, and then let me just go through something here. He said, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul puts down his human accomplishment because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Now, it's not that everything else is so bad. Lots of the things that he listed were good. And it's not that everything else in the world that you might achieve outside of Jesus is bad. It's just that Jesus is so good. You know, let's say you were driving across the ocean on a plane, right? You were riding on a plane and you had treasure in there. But if the plane was going to crash, would you jump out of that plane? You jump out of that plane, right? But when you jump out of that plane, are you saying all the gold that you left behind is bad? No, you're just saying your life is just that much more valuable. That's how it is with Paul. That's how it is with us. It's not that everything that we seek to accomplish is so bad. It's just that the, the worth of Jesus is just so much more. You know, I was talking to Pastor Joshua. He was, he's an Asian pastor. And he was pointing out some deep insights into this passage. And I praise God for that, brother. And he was talking about this passage is about vantage points. He said, from a human perspective, if you look up and you see a rock star, that's good. A football star, that's good. You know, my dad, before he was a pastor, he was an engineer. That's really good. Six figures, that's good. VP of a president, VP of a company, that's really good. From the surface of the planet, looking up towards those men, they seem to tower over us. But from the perspective of heaven, looking down at these men, they seem so small and not as worthwhile. A man could build a wall and it can stretch across the whole nation of China. But from space, it's just a wiggly line. You can pursue great things. Racial harmony, education, changing the nation. You could win a great war. Jesus said, if a man has the whole world, but he loses his soul, what profit does he have? It's not that winning the world is worthless. It's just that the surpassing worth of what's in Jesus is just that much more. I'm not telling you to quit your job. I'm not telling you to stop your hobbies. I'm not telling you to st only read God's word every second of the day. Only pray every second of the day. Only think about Jesus every second of the day. 
But I'm telling you that when you do those things, the value of that is so much higher than the value of anything else you'll do in that day. It's not that those things are bad. It's just that Jesus is so much more good. He talks about knowing Jesus. And the first thing he says is knowing him as Lord. There's too many intellectual Christians and not enough obedient Christians. You got to know Jesus as Lord. To be found in him. It's not that I have Jesus, it's that Jesus has me. He found me. He found me when I wasn't even looking for him. I was like discarded on the side of the road. And Jesus said, I can do something with him. Not because he saw something in me that I didn't see, right? People say, the best in me. No, not that song. (laughs) Not that song, right? That's why I don't like that song. No, he didn't see something the best in me when everybody else saw the worst in me. He saw the worst in me too. But he said, I'm going to transform your worst into my best. It's not my righteousness, it's his righteousness. It's not my good works. I don't come to church so I can earn something before God. I come to church because I'm thankful for what he's done. I'm not doing this because I'm obeying some law. I'm not sitting there saying the these and the thou shalt's and the thou shalt nots. I'm doing it because I love the Lord. That I want to know him and his power more and more every day. And what is knowing his power? Knowing his power is knowing his suffering and his glory. Knowing that Jesus died on a cross because God called him to die on a cross. Just like the Philippians were called to go through persecution. Just like they were called to go to heaven. The two go together. Your suffering and your glory, your humiliation and your glory, they all go together in Christ Jesus. Because just like Christ Jesus got on that cross, and just because we put it as a symbol, sometimes we forget the ugliness of it, that a man was nailed to that cross. That his bones afterwards, right? They said they were going to break his bones. They thought about it, but they didn't have to because he suffered so much. He couldn't take it. That the cross is a suffocation device. It just takes you 12 hours to suffocate. That he did all that. But the same power that allowed him to stay there because he was thinking about me and you, because he was thinking about obeying his father, that's the same power that let him stand up out of that grave. That's the same power that he ascended into heaven and the angel said, don't look for him here but he'll be back. That's that same power that I want to come to know by knowing him. So we get into verse 12. And he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Not already obtained. This knowing Jesus is not something that Paul said he had already obtained. And what I want you to understand is by what he's saying is this is not a result of deep enlightenment. You're not going to get there because you sat under a tree for 10 years. It's not because you understood some great revelation. It's the natural progression of a man owned by Jesus. It's the slow, step-by-step, wanting to know him more and more. He says, I don't obtain, I strain. Forgetting. And straining, by that he means he's given the analogy of a runner that doesn't slow down because he's looking ahead. Right? Sure, you could look at the competition to your left and your right, but every time you do that, you slow down. So Paul is saying, I'm so focused on the goal, I can't spare to look to my left or my right. I press on, you know, We get closer to our goal as we get closer to heaven. And what is our goal? Our goal is knowing Jesus just a little bit more. Maturity is straining to know Christ a little more each day and having the patience to let God work on everybody else until they unite with you in that same pursuit. Look what he says. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Let us think in the way that We need to know Jesus a little bit more each day. And then he says, if anything else you think otherwise, God revealed that also to you. He said, I'm going to be patient with you. If you think it's anything else than this, you're wrong. But God going to work with you. God will work. I thank God for the saints who strain to obey God more and more each day, but were patient with me. When I would be ignorant, when I would say something that was not right, they would... Say, God going to reveal that to him. I'm going to keep on knowing the Lord more every day. So only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Hold true. Don't go back. Don't know the Lord and then try to go back like you don't know. Don't know what God has told you to do and then try to go back like you don't know. I think about Lot's wife. Light's wife is a great spiritual example because in Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, God had pulled Lot and his family out of that city, literally. The angel literally was pulling Lot by the arm. He said, don't look back. Don't look back. Because he had given them an area of refuge in front of them. And behind them was a city that was filled with sin. The main sin, unfortunately, this, you know, this is the kind of stuff that gets you canceled nowadays. But the main sin was homosexuality, unnatural lust. These, this city had been taken over by evil. But Lot and his family were given a place of salvation in front of them. But when the city was being destroyed, Lot's wife turned back. And in turning back, she showed that her affections was more on something that was being destroyed than on the refuge God had given them. 
and she turned into a pillar of salt. That was her judgment. It's not just because she accidentally glanced back when they was running. It's because her desire was more on that city than on the city of God. She was an example to us that we also would not return to our evil deeds. Or as it says, a, a sow returning to his mud and the mire. That we would not turn back, like it says, like a dog returning to his vomit. That's gross, right? And we sit there and say, man, that's nasty. Why would you use that analogy? That's how God feels when we go back. So then Paul answered this, and in verse 17 he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on us. And he starts to describe the characteristics of the evil person versus the good. Let's read verse 17 through 20. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Keep your eyes on us, Paul says, because there are some, right, there are former fellow travelers, people who used to be part of us. He gives them three characteristics. One is their end is destruction or hell. There are some bad examples out there. People say, well, there's some hypocrites in church. They're not lying. Because we've met some who've been in church and they don't want to live right. The second characteristic he gives them is that they serve themselves. They are selfish. They are divisive. They think about themselves first. It's me, 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 me. And the third thing is they glory in shame. In other words, they take pride in things that they shouldn't. You know, easy target for something like that is pride day, right? People take pride in their shameful acts. But it's more than just that. Hot girl summer. We're going to turn up. Right? Drink till you throw up. I can name a lot of different things. But people are proud about doing evil. We got so wasted, dude, right? You come in on Monday, oh, man, I was so hungover. That's a good story. Okay. They glory in their shame. Things that if you was being decent, you would just think about, right? And you say, is that anything to be proud of? He summarizes it by saying their minds are set on earthly things. They have a temporary or earthly focus, and so they'll have a temporary or earthly success. Somebody said if you aim low, you'll hit it. But then he says, but we, and you'll notice it's always the opposites. Number one is their end is hell, but ours, we're citizens of heaven. They serve themselves, but we wait for our Savior, right? Serving yourself versus waiting. They glory in shame, but we wait for a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies, our shame, into glory. It's summarized 
by a power that will subject the universe to all things, of all things to himself. In other words, there's an eternal focus. And so there is an aim for eternal success. I'm not just trying to win tomorrow. I'm trying to win eternity. So then, chapter 4, verse 1, the last section, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Therefore, my brothers, take joy in the brotherly love. He says, whom I long for, take joy in that brotherly affection, my joy and crown, take joy in that godly pride that somebody else puts in us. You know, every once in a while I hear somebody say, ooh, you know, brother so-and-so teach so well. And sometimes we get ashamed by that, right? I say, brother Dale teaching good, brother Cliff teaching good. Brother Cliff, like, oh man, you know, don't say that. But take joy in that. That somebody else sees God's work being done in you. And take joy in those things so that you stand firm in the Lord. Now, this passage has a lot of application. He tells us, put no confidence in the flesh. We got a lot of Christian or fake Christian religions that are telling us to put confidence in the flesh. I think about the black Hebrew Israelites. I think about the Six-Day Adventists. You got all these different Christian religions who are trying to return to the law in their own way. Some of them just observe the Sabbath. Why do we got to go back to that? Let's just think about that in another way. Is Jesus' work enough? And if you think you need to add something to Jesus' work, you're saying it's not enough. And if you're saying it's not enough, you're saying Jesus' body didn't do enough for you. And you're saying that Jesus lied when he said, it is finished. And you said the father was wrong when he accepted that sacrifice. And so you have abandoned the Christian faith. So it's not a small thing when you try to add something on top of the salvation you already have. I think the second application is that you have not arrived. There's nobody in this building that has the Christian that they ought to be yet. We all need to keep striving, but you know what that means? That means there's always a promise of a greater blessing. That there is some communion with the Lord that I have not yet met yet. That there is some understanding of scripture that I have not quite reached. Some sweetness of understanding how the Holy Spirit communes with me that I haven't quite got yet. But I'm going to get there one day. The application, look out. Look out there because there are many people who are wolves in sheep clothing. Trying to attack the body application that we are the people of God. We don't have to do anything more than accept the sacrifice of Jesus to be his people. And the application of standing firm. Stand your ground. You don't have to restate what God has said in some way that's politically acceptable. You just need to stand on what God has said is true. I want you to look at the work of Jesus through this passage. In the first section, right, verse 1, 
rejoice in Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. And the second section, knowing Jesus surpasses everything else. In the third section, it is God's call through Jesus that pushes us to strive to know Jesus more. In the fourth section, imitate believers so that we can wait for Jesus to return and transform us. And in the fifth section, stand firm in what Jesus has taught us. But then I want you to look at the shape of this passage. Because this passage has an interesting shape. It's written in such a way that the sections amplify themselves. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 4. And we'll read them together. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Therefore, my brothers, who I'm love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Joy is standing firm. Look at the second section, verse 2 through 11, and look how it fills the gap of verse 17 through 21. He says, look out for these. But in verse 17, he says, keep your eyes on those who walk right. He says, there are some who have confidence in the flesh. But in verse 18, he says, many of whom I've told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, there is nothing that surpasses the knowledge of knowing Christ. And then verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then at the height of this passage, he says, press. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's where the height of the passage is. Ultimately, this passage is telling us to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord because in it you stand firm. Rejoicing in the Lord is the defense of your faith. Rejoice in the Lord that he is the surpassing glory. Rejoice in Jesus. Don't rejoice in the things of the world. Don't serve yourself. Wait for Jesus. And strain to know Jesus more. So, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. There's so many things that joy is doing in this passage. But at the end of the day, that command still holds true. Rejoice in the Lord. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your truths. We pray that you would just bless us, Lord. Help us to understand that we are commanded to rejoice in you. We are commanded out of a place of love to guard ourselves in your joy, that we have to go through good and bad times. But it is the gospel that allows us to have joy. 
It is knowing you that produces joy in us. It is straining to know you more each day that allows us to go through all the different troubles that we go through throughout the days and the weeks. Because we know you love us and you care for us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would empower us as saints, that we would rejoice in you, that we will worship you through the good and the hard times. In your name we pray. Amen.